This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can have what it says I can have. Today, I'm ready to receive the incorruptible, ever-living seed of the Word of God. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way in my life. I'll never be the same again. Come on. Never, never, never. In Jesus' name, amen. Best shout ever. All right, I will be starting in Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he, he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up a knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says, because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies, and through your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. Amen. Thank you, Victoria. Okay, you may be seated. Thank you for being here today. Uh, this is going to conclude what I've been sharing about every heart, uh, that the expectations God has on all of us in the room. And uh, we're turning the corner next week. Robin's going to be speaking for Mama's Day. Fellas, don't forget Mama's Day. Come on. Uh, Robin will be speaking next week. Uh, but I wanted to land this plane in something I hope will be very thoughtful to you. Uh, here's where we went, kind of the thought we've had so far to follow Christ, walk with him, live with him. It demands everybody in the room, me included, has to risk your pride, your emotion, your effort. Then you have to learn to live beyond logical ability, meaning walking with God on a daily basis. And then last week, realize your life is a seed. This is a requirement for all of us. So none of us really get off, but, you know, from expectation from what God wants, but I think maybe today will hopefully seal the deal in your heart of what God really wants out of you and what he's hungry for in you. Here's the thought I want to give you uh, that I have been passionately aware of. I will leave it that way. And I threw the thought to this. Our country, America, is involved in a cultural war. Everybody say yay to that. I hope that's not a shock to you. All right. Between societal values, meaning what society thinks 
and Christian values. I'm not saying we always haven't fought that. I think every culture has the fight between society's values and what they value versus Christian values, and they've warred against each other from day one on the day of Pentecost. Whether that's religion or politics or culture, it seemingly always wars against the expectations that God has on us. You just happen to be alive in a generation that is getting to see it exponentially play out before you. Uh, and I put the three ways it's playing out today in front of you is on the battlefield of race. Uh, not that it always hasn't, we hadn't fought that battle. Uh, every, if you go back historically, not biblically, just historically, almost every culture has had race wars. Uh, one country subjects another country and they make them their slaves uh, of all different races, white, black, uh, it, you know, whatever, you know, Asian you would be. If we go back through history, we will always see a race or a culture of people conquering another race or culture and making them slaves. It's, so it's not new. It, it's just being shoved down your throat all the time in America of... Blacks don't like whites, whites don't like blacks, blacks don't like Asians, Asians don't like whites. And if you're, if you're even half awake and you just watch TV, I think all of us would just say in the media stream there is a constant barrage of this. Uh, and I'm not saying I'm denying it. I'm not acting like that. There, there's not issues with race or issues between uh, you know, different cultures of people. It's very much alive uh, at the tension of it, but the question becomes, what are we going to do about it? If anything, what can we do? Well, you see how the world handles it. We riot, we throw things, we burn things, we protest. Uh, we start new Instagram pages, we live stream, we podcast, we scream, we holler, we pray. I mean, there's just a, a myriad of ways that we'll handle these things. And then on top of that, we've now added gender and sexual identity. I think all of us that are Christians in the room would say it is a weird generation that we're literally having, uh, they call it logical scientific debates. I call it irrational, weird, stupid debates. But we're... We're debating on whether boys are really boys and whether if they have their little pee-pee or not, they're a boy or, or whatever. You, you, know, you would think we could just go boy, girl. Pretty simple, right? I mean, that's the logic of it. But, but there is this illogical stream that runs, and you get kind of caught in it. Like, I don't even know why we would debate is a boy a boy or a girl a girl. And I'm not talking about that. I think I'm smart enough to know that sometimes a boy may have tendencies for other boys or a girl to other girls. I want to be dumb with that. But I, but I also say what I do see is not just the acknowledgement that a boy struggles with a homosexual tendency or a girl with a lesbian tendency, but that our culture is shoving it down their throats. Uh, curriculum in school, shoving it down their throats. When they're getting kindergartners and first graders to start questioning their gender identity and their sexual identity. I'm okay that a kid 13 or 14 goes, I might question my identity. I'm good with that because we all have to work through life. But when our culture is shoving it down their throats and pressuring kids to make choices and telling doctors you shouldn't have a kid be this or that on your birth certificate, letting them figure it out. Dear God, if we did that to some of you, you would have chosen Labrador Retriever, right? Like that's how crazy we are as humans. But I, without making a joke about it, it is happening whether we agree or not. It's just, you know. And so now the, now the issue is we can become very frustrated and go, Dear God, where's our world going to? What are we going to do about it? Um, you know, what am I going to do about a race war, a gender war, a sexual identity? Well, typical, let's ignore it. Let's hope it goes away. It never goes away. The reason it never goes away is people never go away. And if people never go away, that means to connected to every cultural issue is a heart that's connected to that. And so, but we as Christians find ourselves in the middle of going, what are we going to do about it? Now, here's what's happening on the global scale. 
Christians, because it's such a tense subject, we're swinging kind of to a leftist mentality to just embrace it because it's too touchy a subject to really put your foot down on it. I don't want to get canceled. I don't want my church to lose people if I talk about it. I, I, don't, I don't want to be labeled a racist if I say something as a white person. I don't want to, you know, do something to, you know, that I don't understand. I try to be fair with that. Like, I, I genuinely don't understand what the black culture went through. I, have, I had a lot of friends in the 70s. Um, because in the 70s, when I was in school, they were busing kids into my school. So I was at an all-white school, and that was when they were... Uh, integrating and so they were integrating the blacks into white schools and the whites into black schools and back in the early 70s man it was a hellhole people were mad and ticked and uh, now Mark I was Pentecostal I didn't even know we were supposed to be separate races because every color came to my church and we just all sweated together and sang together and worshiped together so th there was never in my brain the thought that a different color person is, is a subspecies than me. I just never even, I didn't grow up in a family like that, so it was kind of foreign to me. Like, what are they fighting about? I don't even know. But my best friend in elementary school, because I just love people, I guess I did back then, was LaVon, and he was a black boy. And me and LaVon were best friends. I guess I didn't know you weren't supposed to be because nobody told me, but that's the... Mentality. The sad thing is I grew up, became an adult, and realized, oh my God, although we have integrated, there's still a lot of crap of people who haven't changed at all. We changed the laws. Maybe a black person could go drink from a water fountain, and maybe you have to let them come to your school. But as I started pastoring in the early years of the 1980s, and I realized that the church was filled with people who were still racist. I mean, just filled with people. And I was just blown away. Like, how could you be saved and think that way? Like, that's how naive I was. Like, God, how could... And I was kind of, in a weird way, shocked about it. And so now I'm 56. I've lived in America long enough to know that pass all the laws we want, whatever, uh, you would think in 2021 we'd be further along than the march across the bridge, uh, you know, and the fight for the, you know, the... The trash in, the, uh, in Memphis, the trash workers, and further along than Rosa Parks sitting on a bus, we'd be further along by now. But every time I turn on the TV, it's just race, race, gender, gender, sexual identity, race, race, gender, gender. So much to the point that I almost feel like, my Lord, it almost feels like that those in charge want us to hate each other. Like, I, I'm raising my hand going, I don't hate. Like, literally, 99% of the people I got don't hate. Like, we're all hanging out together. But you watch the news and you think, my God, we're going to shoot each other tomorrow. You know, I mean, it's just that, that all around. And I used to say that was just deep south because I grew up in the south. I saw the KKK march. I, you know, my granddaddy pull you back. Stay away from those people, boy. They ain't good for you. You know, and I grew up that way. But now it's our whole country, seemingly. And so it made me want to think, what do we do about this? What do we do about it? I know we try. Like, I'm being fair. We try. We really try. Sometimes I think our trying might be futile. I've even had people here say, I think you need more black people on the stage so that we appear to be more black friendly. And I'm, okay, you know, if that's the way you feel... But my thing is, I really don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm glad Eliana's black. It's not like I look at her and go, God, she's not black. Or it's not like I don't look at Reggie and go, black guy on the drums. Praise God, token black guy on the drums. Everybody clap for the token black guy. We finally got a black guy on the stage. We freaked you out today. We had three black people on the stage. Come on for the black people, right? That, that's how Christians do it. Like, like we, we're trying to be something we're not. To me, if we're family... Who cares if they're fat, skinny, black, white, or yellow? Can they play guitar? If they can play guitar, put them up there. If they can sing on key, put them up there. I don't care what color they are. But that's a hard fight because, you know, you just, you come and you look and it's all white people one Sunday. You're like, well, I guess we didn't prove to the blacks we love them. 
Like that's the mentality that church gets into. That we, we're really not a family, we're just faking it. We, we want you to walk in the door and go, wow, man, they're really multicultural. Look at that stage. And I'm like, well, you paid one of them $25 to be there. And you fired the other one because they were too white and you wanted people to know that you had an Asian up there so that the Asians would think, wow, they're Asian. Now, I'm okay with that. I'm not in charge of other churches. I'm just kind of over this one. I have to stand in front of God and give an account. But my heart is I know I'm white. And it's a shock, right? It is a literal shock. However, I love, I literally love gospel soul music. Like I, I love the whole organ, you know, the everything. I can't play it. I just love it. My kids get in the car. I listen to it. I, I like I like William Murphy. I, I like, I, I like, you know, all the, just the old, good old, you do church this way. <laughs> you know, just, dear, dear God, just pour it. I like that. But at the same time, I don't want to be, I don't want to think that because we're Christians, we have to pander. I think if we would just be who God made us to be, we would be a testimony that there is a church where just like everybody loves everybody and they're really not trying to be anything. That if Ray preaches, it's not because we needed a black man to preach, but because Ray genuinely is gifted. And when Ray stands up here, it's not like, whew, finally we found a black person that can preach that wants to be in a white church and listen to white music. Right? So, so I, I just want to be fair as... as to, as we deal with this, to deal with it in a fair way. Because I know it can hurt us. I, I know that your cultural upbringing, the way your mom and dad raised you, the, the, whatever part of the country you grew up in, you, you have your own experience too. And you may know what it's like to really be hurt by racist mentalities. I just don't want it to be this church. I'm, I'm not saying we haven't been hurt, and I'm not saying we've not had racial things or gender things or sexual things that pop up, but I also want to have a space that when those people come in the door, that I'm good with that. I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to fake something. I want people to know God, but I have to do it in a way to be smart about what my culture I live in is shoving down people's throats. So I picked a, a, a really weird passage of scripture on God wanting Abraham to kill Isaac to try to make my point. Here's the thought. Is my Christian faith strong enough to survive this war? Or am I going to cave in and, and become disingenuine to my faith? And then this thought, if I'm a true Christian... And truly pressing into scriptural life, would I not by that nature address all these issues? Just because of who we are as Christians. And the problem is, even as Christians, we get put into streams. And what somebody said, one of the most racist days of the week is church. Maybe that's fair, I don't know, but I'm not in all the other churches, but... I, at least makes me think that if the world thinks the most segregated place on, is Sunday, then something's wrong. You know? And I'm not saying we all have to, you know, like, oh, let's get everybody together. Because here, let's be smart. Some people just like a style of music. They like a more gospel. They like more uh, contemporary electric guitar. They like just piano and hymns. I'm, I'm okay with that. But I just need to make sure that I know that I don't ever let the things that I want in my life override what my life is called to do. All right? If that makes sense. Here's the thought. And this may sting a mite. God did not come to change the culture. He came to create a new one. Now with this thought, it answers a lot of weird things in the Bible. 
God did not come to change Babylon into a praying nation, but he changed Babylon through a dude that prayed, Daniel. God, and I don't have time to get into this, it's a deep subject. I'll shallow it up and let you think about it. Have you ever read the scripture where God comes to King David when he cheated with Bathsheba and said, if you would have just asked me, I'd have given you all these women of Saul's harem. That's God. That means like, you mean I could just have all the women I wanted? Like that's the thought that comes with it. God himself said to King David, I would have given you any woman you asked for, plus all the women of Saul's harem. You took the one woman you were not supposed to touch, Bathsheba. Now that's a story in the Bible. Blew my mind years ago. How could that God offer up all these women? And it's understanding God didn't come to change the culture David lived in. He came to change the heart. And once you understand this, it starts making sense of what God's trying to do here. God's not trying to change our culture. He's trying to change us. And when he changes us, we create a whole new culture. And it freaks people out. How can y'all do this? How can you, I don't understand. Well, I can't believe When I started my church in Sylvania, Georgia, I was a white guy in a very racist town. And I prayed, God, I need somewhere to meet. My testimony is a black lady stood up at my first Sunday and said, God spoke to me during your message. I'm to offer you my building. I was like, come on, somebody. (laughs) She said, well, follow me. And she took me down the road. She says, I run the black funeral home in town, and I want to offer you my building to use it. She took me through it. There were dead people, literally. She said, don't worry, I'll have all the dead bodies out. (laughs) I said, it makes a great object lesson for the kids' ministry. This is what's going to happen to you if you don't repent. (laughs) Her name was Tazelle Benton. She's with the Lord now. But Tazelle, in a very racist town where the only times blacks and white came together was Friday night football, um, she offered her building to this old white boy. And I, old white boy, said, amen, hallelujah, sister, come on, I receive it. And I went to go create a new culture where blacks and whites in a very racist town could worship together. However, I did not know that upset so many Christians. (laughs) Because the white Christians very much let me know that I don't need to be hanging out with those, and then they use the N-word. Not all of them, but a select few. But the black culture was mad, and this is what they told me, that I'm, the white boy is stealing the black people. That's what they told me. So I was in the middle from the black culture. I thought I just started a church and loved Jesus, but to the blacks, I was a white man stealing the blacks. And to the whites, I was the N-word lover. And I'm just sitting here going, I'm just trying to love Jesus. That's how stupid I was. I'm just trying to love Jesus. Uh, I didn't realize how deep hate went. But on Sunday morning, Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and not like black people. Just to take him at his word but stay in your church. Right? That's kind of the way it works in the South. And so I've really, what I'm preaching to you probably could take me a year to talk about it. But I I feel like I've taken a lot of time to think about it. I'm just going to download to you a bunch of ah. And I hope, and if you're black, I hope you're blessed. Asian, white, I just hope it blesses you. It's what I've worked out, and I landed on this subject. Let's look at it. Here's the scripture. Victoria Kate read it. Sometime later, God tested the faith of Abraham. And God called, and he said, yes. He said, here I am. Take your son. Don't you love this God? I want you to kill your only kid. 
Take Isaac, who you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. In other words, there will always be a place in God where God will always come to test your faith with him on the thing you love the most. And if you love your race more than you love God, you're going to have a problem. And if you love your sexual identity more than you love God, you're going to have a problem. God will always touch the thing you love the most. Right? So he does. This is the start of it all. Abraham in Romans 4 is called the father of our faith. So this is Daddy Abraham. Look at how passionate God is. Just go sacrifice him as a burnt offering. I even heard somebody say, why would I want to serve God and make me want to kill my baby? And I'm like, I don't want to either. There have been times I wanted to sacrifice my children. I want to be fair. I want you to think I'm all spiritual. There have been times I've looked at Rob and said, bring me a knife and a log. That kid will never disobey me again. You know? Lord, you better stop me. <laughs> oh, look at him sitting over there. <laughs> if you don't know, anytime I talk about my girls, I have to Venmo them. So they're over there getting money. They're like, five more dollars, five more dollars. Now, to understand why God asked for this kid, if you're not careful, you miss what he's doing. Because what God is going to do is he's going to step down into Abraham's culture to reveal his nature within his culture. It's what God always does. In the middle of culture, God is always trying to grab a human to reveal his nature inside of that culture. He's not trying to change the culture. He's trying to get a human to be a revelation of the new culture. So he reaches down to Abraham. Now to understand it, you've got to go forward in the Bible to the book of Joshua. Let's look at it. First chapter 24. It's tucked away really nicely in Joshua 24. But Joshua tells us something about Daddy Abraham that maybe you did not know. Joshua said to the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah... The father of Abraham and Nahor, that was Abraham's brother, lived beyond the Euphrates. And what did Abraham's daddy do for a living? He worshipped other gods. So Abraham, who God is going to reveal something to, took Abraham out of a family who worshipped other gods. That was his upbringing. His upbringing is, my daddy worships other gods. My daddy makes idols for other gods. Now, without uh, spending months on this, the way you worshiped other gods is you sacrificed your children to other gods. Uh, especially the god of Melech, which is where they would take their child, typical. They would take a newborn child. They would put the child in a, like a concrete oven, a brick oven. They would set the child in the oven. They would put fire in the oven. They would light the fire. And then the child would burn and cook alive in the oven. And the screams that would go out from the baby were a sign of the parent that dedicated the child that my life belongs to you. So those were, sometimes you'll read that they would pass the children through the fire in the Old Testament. Well, that was the practice of the culture. You wanted to prove to a God you loved it, you killed your kid and you gave your kid to the God. And then that God said, yep, but your kid was dead. You felt better in your conscience because you appeased the God, but you had to give up a kid. Now Abraham grew up in a culture that thought that way. So the way God is going to capture his heart is he's going to take the way he thinks culturally and not change the culture, but create an entirely new culture. So let's go back to Genesis. God says, I want you, Abraham, watch now. God pulls Abraham out of an idol-worshiping, kid-killing culture and says something Abraham can grab onto. I want you to kill your kid to show you how loyal you are to me. Now, he's watched this his whole life with his daddy and the culture he lives in. 
He, here's how weird and how deep it is. Abraham did not even question it. You would think any normal dad would be like, yo, you got something else I could do. Not Abraham. Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders and he carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked together, Isaac turned to Abram and said, Father, yes, my son, Abram replied, we have the fire and the wood, but where's the sheep? Even the kid knew he was being raised by his daddy. You offer offerings to gods. This is the grandson of Terah. I was raised in a culture where you kill things to take them to the God to prove your loyalty. So even the kid knew, I'm carrying the logs because we're going to have an offering. The offering we're going to make, we're going to make it to this God, and so we're all good here. But then when he realizes there's no sheep, Abram says this, God will provide the sheep for the burnt offering, my son. And Abram answered, and they both walked on together. Cool. Isaac's cool. Abraham's probably playing it cool as a dad. Next verse. And when they arrived at the place where God told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood. This has to be a freaky moment. He tied up his son and he laid him on top of the wood. The weird thing is it doesn't tell us that Isaac had another comment here. Because maybe he knew the loyalty of his father. Maybe he was raised that when we kill a kid, you just shut your mouth. This is what we do. The gods will be proud of you. He doesn't say anything. He just, I, I just can't imagine a father tying up a kid and laying them. And it's not like Isaac didn't know. He's already questioning where's the offering we're going to burn. So it's not like it's as new to him. And so he puts him on the altar. And I mean... Abraham, as we look at this and think, how could a daddy kill his kid? And how could God want him to kill his kid? And he raises the knife to kill the kid because this is what you do in my culture to prove loyalty. And he rears back and when he picks it up, the next verse, and at that moment, the angel of the Lord called, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't hurt him in any way. I know that what? You truly fear God. On this moment, at this time, God created a brand new culture that blew Abraham's mind. This is the only God I've ever met who doesn't require a child sacrifice. This is why Abraham became so loyal. Every other God lets my kid burn in the oven. Every other God listens to the screams. Every other God takes my kid from me and I get nothing back but an ease guilty conscience. But wait a minute, this God just defined a whole new culture for me. He doesn't kill babies. He saves them. He doesn't require my child. He, oh, it was mind-blowing to Abraham. And what it teaches me about this is God is okay to step into a racist, sexual, gender-confused culture, but when he steps into it, it's to show a different side of his nature. He's trying to reveal who he is in the middle of the hell. And so he steps into Abraham and says, your father, your grandfather, everybody before you sacrificed to gods. Your own daddy made idols to gods. You sacrificed your children. Here's what I'm going to do. I want you to go sacrifice your kid. Come on, we're just going to get your culture. Come on, take your culture, come with me. And he takes the culture and he comes with him, but God stops it. Next verse. This is mind-blowing. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Meaning God's going to not just change culture. He's going to shift it. And Abraham, come on, if you grew up Pentecostal, you better know this song. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. 
Abraham named that place Yahweh Yireh, which means God will provide. Sounds romantic, doesn't it? Wow, God gave me a ram in place of my kid, but I love the next phrase, often overlooked. To this day, people still use the name Yahweh Yireh as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Look at this. Here's the thought. In the middle of a hellacious culture, because Abraham decided to be strong for the Lord and to create a different culture, his life became a proverb of the life of God to the culture in which he lived. It didn't change the culture. They all kept killing kids. But he became a testimony and a proverb that I don't know about that fellow, but on that mountain, God provided for him. Said to be the same mountain on which Jesus will come back. So that the, the story in the middle of a culture that's gender confused and sexually confused and racially frustrated, God is not coming to change that. He's coming to pick you up within it and to give you such an experience with Him that your life becomes a proverb of a different kind of culture within which we can live inside of this hellacious culture. My life becomes the testimony that there's a new culture in town. And what happens when enough people come together who've had an experience with God that has changed them, we create a new culture called church. And when a new culture called church comes together, we become a proverb to the town. Dude, I know there's a bunch of racial stuff going on. I'm telling you, on the corner of Pope and Beaumar, they got something going on. There's some kind of freedom there. People are changing. Lives are being changed. There's hope on the corner. They genuinely love each other on that corner. Why? It's not because we're going to change the country of America. It's because a, a group of people who've had an encounter with God create a whole new culture. So maybe the issue today is not what's going on with Washington or not what perverted hearts are doing or not the hate that is being propagated. It might just be that Christians... Just quit having experiences with God. And we just turned into religious people that go to a religious church service to check the box, to get God off my back, but nothing is changing. Here's the thought. It was Abraham's experience with God that became the defining proverb of his culture. His experience with God defined a new culture. And I present to you that what God is trying to do is to offer America a new culture. But if we're not having experiences with God on a genuinely life-changing level, then we really never see culture change because hearts aren't changing. And therefore, when hearts don't change, we just blame people. Well, it's the cops. No, it's not. It's blacks. No, it's whites. No, it's Asians. No, it's Joe Biden. No, it's Donald Trump. No, it's Ted Cruz. No, it's crazy AOC. No, whatever we say. It's always somebody else's fault because I can't look at my heart and say that I, it has to start this internal change with my heart. And when it starts with my heart, I can create a whole new culture around my heart. Now what that's going to do is it's going to force me to die to my upbringing. What my mother told me, my daddy told me, if it's against truth. What religion has told me. What the media tells me I should be thinking right now. What society tells me that I should be thinking about little boys and girls trying to figure it out. They bombard me to, because that, that culture is trying to squash this new culture. And the way it squashes it is I just quit trying to be so different because it's too stressful and I just kind of submerge into the culture and just try to live it. But I never become new because it's too hard. I don't want to be canceled. I don't want to be talked about. I don't, I don't want to do that. Here's two scriptures that may open your eye. Peter. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slave to sin and corruption. You're a slave to whatever controls you. 
And when people escape from the wickedness of the world, how do they escape? By knowing God and Jesus. But then they get tangled up again and enslaved by that sin again. They're worse off than before. Meaning, you might be a Christian, but your life is to be changing. But if you don't change, you're worse off than you were before you ever even got born again. Because you're to be a different nature. Next verse is even a little more stingful. It would be better had they had never known the way of righteousness than to know it and then reject the command to live a holy life. They prove, watch, they prove the truth of this proverb. And when I read that, it dawned on me. I went back to Abraham, who became a proverb to his generation, that God will provide. But also, the world says the way you live, your life will be a proverb. Here's the proverb of the world. A dog returns to its vomit and a wash pig returns to the mud. But that's a proverb. And then it dawned on me this. Every heart in this room, every heart in the room is a proverb. Your life speaks. If people are around you and have racist thoughts, maybe because your proverb is a racial thought if your children are racist and don't like black people maybe it's because daddy is a proverb of racism if your kids hate police because they look at all the violence maybe it's because mom and dad hate police because your life's a proverb and your kids follow you because as you go to kill them to tell them what you believe they follow you along and so we end up raising racist religious bigoted self-identity confused children because we are we are our own proverb. Your life speaks. Whether you want it to speak or not, it'll either speak to the new nature of God or it will speak to the old nature of you. You don't, you, here's the deal whether you like it or not, it's just true. Your kids already have a perception of you right now. Man, every time I flunk a test, don't tell daddy. Oh, God, he loses it. I come home and daddy's a kickback and he's always got a beer in his hand. It doesn't mean you're an alcoholic dad, but maybe it just means that to your children you're becoming a proverb. They're learning how to deal with life because they watch you slam doors. They're learning how to deal with life because they hear you make comments about gay people. They're learning how to deal with life because they hear the gay jokes you tell. They're learning how to deal with life because they hear you use the N-word, but you never do it publicly because you don't want to lose your job, but you become a proverb. And you fake it because that's what people who are a proverb are trying to do. But what God wants us to know, everybody in this room right now, you're a sentence that's being written for the generations coming behind you to define how the life really is. And if they follow a racist, they'll be one. If they follow a rude pervert, they'll probably become that or hate it. But every life in the room is a proverb. Here is my question, another thought. Let me give you that. It's the Christian who's encountered a genuine, like Abraham, life-changing experience with God that becomes the greatest change agent of culture. You want to see your children change, Daddy? Then change. I just don't know. My kids just don't seemingly press into God. Well, of course, you don't. So why would they? If all you're doing is watching Netflix, working hard, what, do you, what kind of proverb are you telling them? They never see you pray. They never see you read the word. The only time you pray is when mama says, let's pray for the food. Yeah, hat off, boys. Get your hat off. We're going to pray for the food. But your true proverb is you're addicted to porn, you're angry, you're mad, you're frustrated, you try to drink it away, you cuss a lot, you're always frustrated. You and mom hadn't been intimate in years, but by God, I'm raising my boys to be good boys. You're a, you're a proverb of their destruction because we all are proverbs. Now what the world is showing you, back to my thought, on the news, you're getting all of the proverbs of the people who are racist and angry and mean and ticked and miffed. While we go, God, what's happening? What's happening is we are allowing their language to rewrite my story. 
And I'm scared to say anything. I don't know. I, I don't know what if I say the wrong thing. And so my life becomes a proverb written by my flesh and written by my fears. Rather than just being bold. And just going, well, if you're mad and don't want to come back, okay, don't come back. I don't want you here anyway if you're racist and all this stuff. I mean, yeah, I kind of do because I, I love you like a father, but it makes me want to throat punch you, but I'm not. But, because I got my own problems, I'm gonna throat punch anybody, it'll be me, because I have my own issues too. But I wanna create a culture where you can walk in with your issues and go, we're good with everybody's issues because we're trying to create a new culture of who we are in Christ, not who we are by my daddy, not who we are by my mother, or by society, or by what people think that I should think. Because what's being thrown down you is they think you should think like this, and that is a war. And so here's the question. Is your experience with God real enough to become a proverb of His name inside your 50 feet? Do your children know God because of you? Now my girls, if we ask them, I think they would say, Daddy's just a normal dude. Sits at home, plays his banjo, while he watches TV, while he plays Word Feud, while he screams for me to bring him a cookie. That's... That's normal. But I've also tried to be a proverb to my children. I've tried to be a proverb that when all life falls apart, there's God. I think they could tell you. I've never asked them to read their Bible or forced them. I've never forced them to pray. I've never forced them to come to church. I've never asked them to come to church here. I've told them, you ought to go to Louis Giglio's. He's doing a great thing. I don't know why you come here. They choose it. And I think the reason they chose it is their father and mother was a proverb of God's life. And when mama fell apart, daddy was there with God. And when daddy fell apart, mama was there with God. And the testimony of our parents is they were a proverb of a new life in God. Not saying they didn't have their own troubles. Or I didn't have my own troubles. But I realized real quickly that, watch, if daddy just reads his Bible, every one of my kids read their Bible. Because they've seen me read it for 31 years every night. They follow the proverb of their father. And when daddy's walking through life going, look, I really don't know what's going on in your life, but let's just keep on going with God because God has created a new culture for us. And he will provide for us. I leave you with this thought. Is your life, Daddy, have you had such an experience with God that he's so real to you that your life is a proverb of his life? Or to people who you work with, do they ever see God's nature in you? Because you tell the same jokes they do. You listen to the same racial rants they put out there. What kind of proverb are you? Because every heart is a proverb. And if we want to change the culture within which we live, we don't change the culture, we just create a new one. And the new one is the church of Jesus Christ whose hearts have been changed by Him who are a proverb to the lost world that there's hope inside this room. Let me pray for you. Hope that helped you. Father, thank you. Now here, I mean, you know, here, here's my thought. Good message, bad message, whatever. It's really your heart that is the issue. You may have been raised with racial thoughts. You may have had parents or you may work in an environment that's very racist. You may be living with or working with a bunch of gender-confused people. That's okay. Don't sweat it. God is calling you out to just show a, a proverb of a new culture. People are supposed to say, why are you so different? Why do you have so much peace? You, it seems like your children all serve the Lord. Why? Because you're establishing a new culture and a new creation. It's a challenge for sure. But is your experience with God real enough to have an impact inside your 50 feet 
Because in that, you don't change the culture where you work. You just invite people into this new culture that you are. You'll probably still work with racist thinkers, confused people, angry people, people who hate God, people who hate other races, people who talk trash. I wish I could tell you it would all go away. It probably isn't. But you can be the proverb in the middle of it to give people a new identity with God and Jesus. Now I'm going to put a prayer on the screen for you to pray as you come take communion. But here's my thought to you. I want you to be honest with yourself. Dads, are you a good proverb for your children? If they wrote a sentence about you, is it the kind of sentence you would want to be known for? Mom, same thing. Are you, are you a good proverb for your kids? Husbands to wives, are you a good proverb? Because people are reading your life and every heart is a proverb. It's a simple remedy. God, forgive me. If you had racist tendencies, you were raised that way. It's, it's so simple today. Father, forgive me. If I've ever thought this way, forgive me, God. Help me to create a new culture. If you're somebody that says, well, I'm not racist, I'm not that way, but yet you're in the middle of all the jokes. You're, you're not telling the jokes, but you're giggling, you're laughing. Okay, well, just today, God, man, help me to stand strong. To be a proverb that my, I, I disagree with that. To be a proverb that my life is different. To be a proverb to not be afraid to be different, to not be afraid to pick the knife up on the things that I hold so dear, to die to those things, my pride, my ego, my that I could die to all of that, that I could show people a new life. I pray you would have that boldness this week. I pray you would have the boldness to, to realize you may not change culture. You may not change what the news is showing you. You may not change what Twitter or Instagram does. But in one person in your 50 feet, you could be the change agent that gives them hope that there is hope beyond this life they're living. And that's you. Jesus in you. Stand with me if you will. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there is anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new message.